Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Frasca. Hi, man. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? So we've met each other at the serverless days uh, in Rome when the power ran out uh, halfway <laughs> through the conference uh, yes. when the Alex uh, Casaponi was presenting, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was very funny. Uh, so you were telling me that uh, you've been working with a German TV company called uh, Proceban and you guys are doing some really interesting stuff using Lambda over there. Sounds like you're running at pretty high scale as well. Um, so can you maybe start by telling us about you know, yourself and what you do at uh, Proceban? Sure. Um, I'm Daniele Frasca. I have joined Proceban around two years ago. I have developed around Europe, Italy, where I start, Ireland, UK, and after the Brexit uh, referendum, have landed here in Germany in Proceban. Proceban is one of the biggest uh, German TV and reach over 45 million households in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And at the same time, so we have around 36 million unique users every month on our uh, application market by Proceban Sat1. My team, is Syndication, is part of the digital media distribution of Proceban, and we are responsible to syndicate, distribute Proceban format and content to other media companies and social media platforms. Okay, that sounds like you've got a fairly sizable user base, and I guess if your content has to be distributed to many different platforms, I imagine there's a lot of data pipeline, maybe media conversion happening. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about how uh, Proceban is using serverless in that context? Okay, so Proceban has many applications. Uh, in my department uh, is divided by two major products, the classic uh, TV application like the web, mobile, smart TV, and, my, and the, the digital distributions where my team uh, is sitting. Not everybody is using serverless, uh, but uh, on the TV side, where we have like uh, uh, even 100, 100 million uh, heat on the APIs and everything, we are moving uh, bit by bit the, the cluster side in a more serverless side. But I cannot tell you more about this because it's not, uh, it's not my teams. About my teams, we, uh, we are a B2B platform and our focus is availability, resilience, and we do. We also take care of scalability, performance, and everything. But our our team is a perfect fit for uh, for the for serverless because anyway, serverless shine uh, when you look at an event based model, and has a perfect integration with other many services respect to the classic to the classic uh, cluster. So. Um, Practically, when I joined uh, Proceban, the, the team syndication was based on the three tires uh, enterprise ap application inside a cluster. We have our own EC2 machines, we have Elastic Cache cluster, Mongo cluster, we have everything. The problem was that at the time the team was firefighting the system, it couldn't scale. Every time that we touch something, they break something else in the, in the distribute monolithic world. So we start introducing serverless, uh, doing uh, workshops, uh, try to convince the team, the management mostly, uh, and we apply the stronger pattern. Uh, and in this way, we, tr we increment, uh, we try to replace uh, components of the legacy system with serverless module. And until in six months time, we pretty much uh, rewrote the entire applications. 
Okay, so you rewrote the previous uh, distributed monolith. Well, I guess when you say distributed monolith, uh, do you mean that you've got lots of uh, you know, monoliths that are sharing the same database, and then you sort of re-architected them into some more? So I guess uh, what you would uh, one would think of as a microservices architecture, where you've got uh, distinct uh, bounded context and responsibilities and different microservices on their own database? Yes, yes. We have exactly this situation and all the microservices were very chatty. So to track the, the flow was very, very difficult. And um, serverless actually helped us a lot because we went, uh, we, we designed a function with a single responsibility. We simplify the rules. Uh, we, we, the flow is much, much easier uh, once you do a combination between SF functions, lambdas, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, this is, uh, this is how we actually apply serverless to our, uh, our sector. Okay, um, I guess uh, let me come back to step functions a little bit later because I'm a big fan of step functions and I'd love to hear about your use case there. Um, so in this case, uh, did you have to also migrate the database technology itself as well? Because I imagine where you had the distributed monolith and the shared database, you were maybe using some kind of a relational database uh, and everyone's just connecting to that and updating data directly. So, so now that you move to this uh, microservices, uh, this new serverless world, are you still using relational database or are you using something like DB or other databases? Um, yeah, the, the beauty was, so we are using DynamoDB and the beauty was that we actually, um, we actually introduced in the side the legacy events, right? And with these events, uh, we migrate uh, the monolithic data in, in a month time. So we did a shadow, a shadow of the production uh, applications at the time. So when we start, we didn't have the need to to migrate anything. We we just switch off the the old system and uh, switch on the new one. Um, yes, we move from Mongo to Dynamo. Uh, of course, the, the new system uh, has a different type of query and everything, but it didn't affect us. So. Okay, I see. Yeah, so you use that pattern whereby you, instead of uh, rewriting and then I guess doing a big bang release, uh, you start to update the legacy system to emit events so that you can then populate your new database with the events and then fill in the data you need. And then you create another parallel service that, uh, I guess, a new microservice that does one part of what the monolith used exactly. to do. And then over time, you route the request for that feature from the monolith to the new, uh, new microservice, and then gradually you repeat that process. Exactly. We did exactly this. And uh, this actually, uh, I mean, w w people think it was very difficult, but if you think about it, it's, a, it's very easy because serverless shine with this event model. And... Uh, we actually help us to so we we act the, the application like every single application has its own complexity and it was not easy but in six months time we manage as a small team of four we manage to practically uh, maintain the, the legacy system and rebuild a new one we actually um, um, reduce the cost from 40k to 10k and we improve the scalability of the system to, I don't know, to 10,000 requests per seconds. 
Uh, okay, so that's a pretty good uh, saving, but I guess the usually uh, cost is not the primary driver for people doing this kind of migration. Was there some kind of trigger, some kind of a problem that make you guys uh, think, oh, this architecture is not good enough for what we want to do? We want to, and uh, and why we want to go into something like uh, building microservices using serverless technologies. Yes, the history behind is um, this application was maintained by many people, right? At the time that I joined, uh, the old developers were not there. The system couldn't handle uh, uh, many requests. Uh, we, we didn't deliver uh, any values uh, for the business anymore because we were firefighting at all times. Bugs takes uh, days, weeks uh, to fix uh, so we, we reached the point that what we had was not uh, manageable. And uh, again, serverless fit 100% our needs. So we, we, uh, we are a B2B business, even though with serverless, you can even build a front-end application at an immense scale. Um, but for us, uh, the, the, the serverless give us the advantage to start to, to we, we were much faster to release uh, features we reduce the cost, as I say, and uh, we actually, the most important thing is that our management was much more happy because we started delivering uh, features for the partners and onboard the new partners much, much faster than what has been done until that time. So the, there are many, many factors. Uh, why serverless uh, help us, uh, why we are so happy. Uh, if we're going at a team level, uh, we don't have uh, much uh, hopes, and uh, the team now is focused uh, on what they do best, what they pay for, coding. Okay, that's actually a very, very similar story to uh, what I had uh, back in 2016 when I was at uh, a startup, a social, a social network a startup. Uh, similar problem you, ha you guys had in terms of uh, you know, firefighting all the time, in terms of the application can't scale, and uh, uh, in terms of even you know, put the problems like you, you, you talked about how it took months to deliver a new feature, and uh, we went through pretty much the same migration process like you did, uh, going from Monolith, uh, MongoDB database to microservices with their own databases in DynamoDB and also, you know, it's similar pattern to you, what you did as well in terms of using events to pave that path so that we can migrate data from the legacy system to the new service and then be able to switch Know, certain endpoints and proxy them to the new microservices. It's, it's really refreshing to hear, you know, someone going through a very similar journey uh, uh, that I did before. And uh, do you have some sort of sense in terms of uh, how much faster the team is now compared to before? Do you have some kind of metrics around how long it takes to deliver uh, features on the uh, monolith versus how much time it takes to deliver a similar feature nowadays? From It looks like we went from a month to months two weeks. In a sprint, we usually deliver two, three features uh, if request. And, but most of all, we actually don't have many bugs uh, because starting from scratch, we manage to have like a 100% uh, unit test coverage. We do automation tests, integration tests. We do everything by, by the book. And, uh, um, and uh, we actually also, for example, solve a problem deploying. Before the deployments was many manual steps. It takes like more than an hour. And now it's just a click and minutes later the application is up to date. 
Um, yeah, I think, uh, yes, we are way, way faster. <laughs> that's really good to hear. Um, again, like that, that's the sort of thing that I think uh, uh, this is a really good the reason why someone should go to serverless is be- just because uh, you know your velocity goes up massively. There's fewer bugs. Um, there's also a lot, a lot easier to have a really smooth CI/CD pipeline um, you know, deployment. Just so much simpler when you've got less things you've got to worry about. Um, yes. I, I, sorry, I, I think also another, another advantage is now the team actually has the full control of the system in a way that we actually know how the flow works and how things work in the serverless. Many, many people complain, ah, serverless architectural diagram are more complicated because you have a very detailed flow, no, many lambdas, the messages. But we actually, every, everybody in the team now, knows exactly what a lambda does and how is the flow. What something, something that you couldn't uh, have with the monolithic because only is a, the diagram is a block that does billions of things. So this also, at, uh, if, you, if you see this as uh, onboarding a new team members inside the, inside the team, this is an advantage that you don't have most likely with the monolith approach. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, 100% agree there. Um, okay, so on the flip side, what were some of the biggest challenges uh, when you know, when it comes to transitioning from your monitor application to serverless? I guess there are some technical challenges, but then the, what about in terms of the sort of cultural and engineering challenges with the team you had? Was everyone so familiar with uh, serverless technologies already or did you have to you know, train everybody up? Yes, uh, I I already experienced like uh, I started I don't know five six years ago, I don't, I don't remember so something like this when I was in London, and um, so practically it's a cultural change. Usually, you uh, people are comfortable on what they're doing, so we have uh, the classic discussion in the team with the management. Ah, let's keep going like this. Let's try to improve what we have. But the, the roadmap to do so, I mean, even if you are very good, it will never happen. If you didn't manage to improve the system before, you don't do it now. Uh, so practically what I did is um, many meetings, workshops about uh, serverless, the benefits, the classic, you know, increase the agility, lower the cost. Uh, that was very important for the management. Uh, less ops, blah, 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 this kind of stuff. And uh, um, I had to show by example. So, so I, I remember at the time I, I, I rewrote for myself on my own time a component. And uh, at the time it was this uh, step functions so I was doing a packaging and we were using this step function was, was using API Gateway as a proxy to still communicate with the, the endpoints inside the cluster. So I have to show all of these kind of things because people, the nature of the developers do not trust new things. And actually the main disadvantage at the moment that I have with serverless is we cannot find people. Nobody has serverless experience. People, when they talk about the cloud like AWS, they all do Docker, a cluster. And there is... We, we, uh, this is the issue. We, we need to scale the team, but people don't, don't even try 
to to apply because they're maybe scared of serverless. And every day is still discussing with other colleagues that serverless is not so expensive at scale. So I did many calculations with other people, right? Uh, API Gateway Lambda, and so just API Gateway Lambda, we we, we could have case. Uh, uh, so so API Gateway is coming with 10,000 10, requests per second. So you can uh, ask AWS to increase the limits. So you could have like 600,000 uh, requests per minute. That is unbelievable if you think. Something like this is coming with a ticket that you have into AWS. While if you want to have a cluster, you need to have an SRA team there. You need to have a war, uh, a war room where people, uh, not with people. So the total cost of ownership is much, much higher. So these are where all the things that I did uh, when I joined, when I tried to transit the, the, the team from uh, normal development to, so let's say from Docker to serverless. Yep, staffing costs is uh, one of those uh, one of those costs that people don't think about when they think about the total cost of ownership for a solution they have. Uh, to look at what they're paying AWS uh, every month, that's easy to measure. And I guess that the, the old fallacy is that uh, what gets measured gets optimized, uh, and you're forgetting the fact you're forgetting the fact that uh, you've got a team of four engineers just to be there to look after your Kubernetes cluster because it's such a big, <laughs> heavy, uh, complex machinery, and you're paying those guys the ten thousand know, pounds a, a month or something like that. So your total cost of ownership is actually much much higher than what you see on your AWS bill and and not yes. to mention the fact that it takes longer to develop features and uh, there's a more, uh, I guess, a more complex, there's more challenge that you've got to handle in terms of having the multi-AZ, uh, making sure you've got the right redundancy or the scaling policy as well because uh, even if you're running Kubernetes, you, know, you still need to worry about scaling the, the cluster underlying, uh, underneath. Yes, and most, uh, most people, especially media, what they do, they scale the cluster before the prime time, right? And uh, so just on the hope that you will have a certain type of number of people. While with serverless, I mean, you already know that you can do, let's say, out of the box, 600,000 requests per minute. You, you, you can sleep. You don't need the people there checking the system every single time so to predict traffic. It's a, I think the issue is, serverless is still feel like like a new technology so even if it's a five years that exists <laughs> and it's, it's the cultural change is very slow yeah yeah i mean lambda came out in the what 2014 so it's about the same time as uh, when the docker went into version one i think that was the 20th end of 2013 when the docker became a version one uh I remember, I remember when the lambda came out. I guess it was, uh, it was fairly limited. And, uh, they, you know, you could uh, trigger that, uh, trigger lambda function with S3. Uh, but then when API Gateway came out, about I don't know, six months or nine months later, that was the big game changer. I think that opened up yes. a lot more use cases for what you could do using lambda. And I guess even if you worry about the cost at scale with something like API Gateway, which can get expensive, there's also options for looking at the ALB. Uh, which uh, you're paying for uptime, so the, the pricing model is different, but uh, at the high volume, ALB can be a lot cheaper compared to API Gateway. 
Well, I we can discuss about this. I have my opinion. The, if you take the normal microservices, right, the API, the compute, computation database. So, if you just concentrate on the endpoint and the computation, is like ALB and a cluster. I did the calculations and uh, uh, 10,000 requests per second, right? And I like, uh, sorry, the calculation was 100 million requests. So 100 million hit on the API gateway. Just the API gateway will cost $10 or 100 million. And uh, the computation of the Lambda, if you think uh, one second to to return some information that is actually quite slow, was thousand, and uh, to have a that scale, you don't, you don't, you cannot. I think you cannot compare that scale with the cluster. I mean, it, it will cost you much more unless you start to put many things inside the clusters, and you are doing an optimization in cost in this way. Uh, no, what I meant was ALP with Lambda. I don't mean that you have to run. You don't have to run a cluster behind ALB. You could just have ALB uh, instead of API gateway, but routing requests still to Lambda function so that you don't have to uh, manage any clusters yourself. Yes, but at that point you can put you can put an API gateway. So today, I think yesterday there is also API gateway to uh, application load balancer if you want to keep everything private. Okay, well, okay, but when I did a, uh, when I did some calculation before, uh, ALB is a lot cheaper once it gets into the sort of you know, thousands of requests per second uh, throughput compared to a, um, API gateway. Even with API gateway, HTTP APIs, which is already quite a lot cheaper compared to uh, API gateway REST APIs, ALBs can still be very uh, very cost effective uh, when you've got say you know consistent throughput of thousands of uh, requests per second. If you got spiky traffic, okay, maybe that's different. When you've got uh, spiky traffic that happens, I don't know, once a day or whatever, uh, you got you, know, you got a massive spike, but then your baseline traffic is still quite low. Then I think that cost equation might not apply. But if you've got a really steady high throughput, then the, uh, I think ALB is going to be saving you a lot of money compared to API Gateway. That is, yes. if you don't need anything, the ALB um, doesn't support things like custom Lambda authorizers and things like that. Yeah, so in the end, I mean... Yes, you can build pretty much everything with serverless, but it's also true. You need to always to do your own uh, test. Uh, every, everything uh, has its own fit. So most likely when you have a very high scale application, maybe you have a boat, you have an hybrid. Huh? Maybe you have, an, uh, you have a cluster, you have some lambdas. It always depends. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I think it uh, depends from the scale but the majority of the application out there can be done in a serverless way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, even companies like uh, iRobot and uh, companies like that, which are dealing with fair amount of traffic. Uh, um, and Basel is another good example. They're, they're serving, I think, uh, also maybe 10 or maybe more million uh, monthly active users uh, really on the, on the user-facing APIs uh, websites. Uh, so you know, they are handling quite a lot of traffic and they have to do some slightly different, no, slightly, I guess, unconventional things uh, in terms of optimizing the, the latency, but also in terms of cost as well. So they, they try to often cut out as much of uh, you know, things as they can so that you know, they don't use API gateway for everything. Um, and uh, sometimes they, they often do lambda to lambda direct invocations, uh, things like that. 
but yeah, if you've got the specific use case and you've got specific concerns, um, then yeah, by all means, uh, go off the beaten path. But uh, the, the beaten path is good enough for maybe 90, 95% of you out <laughs> there. So I want to circle back to step functions because uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of a step function. So um, can you maybe just sh uh, shed some light on the, some of the use cases you have with uh, step functions and how, uh, how it helps you implement those features? Okay, so I think before I need to explain you a very high level of what is the architecture. So uh, Syndagation, as I said, we are distributing packages and the package is made of video, images, and metadata to media media companies and social platforms. So our architecture is made pretty much from five major components with an overall of 70 lambdas functions. So practically, uh, these five components are like this. So we are receiving a notification. They say, oh, look, uh, this needs to be delivered to partner X. Um, we practically get this notification from an external team. We do a query to an app sync. We get our data. From there, we, we, Dynamo, we save to Dynamo. With DynamoDB stream, we check the difference. And we send a message to an SQS to the second component. The second component practically a couple of checks, but emit to event like uh, created or to be updated. And, the, and um, these events are made with uh, event bridge that will trigger directly a step functions. And here we are going to the third components. These components is a, so the step we use a step function as orchestrator. So this is what we call the packaging system. We, we call a different team uh, for the transcoding because we do transcoding on demand and we do the SQS integrations. So we send an, an SQS uh, to this other team. The other team does the transcoding. After a few hours, whatever is the time, they will respond with success token or failure token. And we go ahead where we actually generate uh, custom images and the metadata. So this is the first step function. Here we also call uh, some express workflow. It depends uh, from different type of configurations. We emit another event, always with Evan Bridge, that will trigger another step functions, that is the delivery system. Also here we have a few steps, and we have the integration with AWS Batch. Uh, where practically we are downloading uh, the, the, the video that the other teams upload on our side, the metadata, images, we do packaging. So like uh, we do a zip, a tar, and everything. And we are transferring this video through different services like Aspera, S3, whatever the customer wants to their server. And in the end, we have the, the latest component that is an API endpoint, API gateway, where the customers send... Uh, a feedback like, uh, yes, we receive uh, the, the package has been processed correctly or there is an error. So these are pretty much the five components. We are using, as I say, the step function. It just, we are using the step function as application orchestration. So we have many steps, many conditions. And with the step function, uh, we have uh, many features that built uh, already in the step function that don't need to be coded inside the applications like the parallel processing, error handling, timeout, retry, all these little features are coming out of the box. And this actually means less code for us, less maintenance and less errors because at the time that you code, you do mistakes. Yeah, so this is why we're, how and why we are using the step functions. 
Okay, that's cool. So you're using SQS uh, with a task token, and, you, and then you wait for the uh, task token callback from the the thing that you've just uh, that you've called. Yes. Um, one thing I want to I want to uh, ask about here though is that uh, you're using AWS Batch to download those uh, video files. Uh, why using AWS Batch rather than just having a Lambda function? Because the um... The download could take go over the 15 minutes. The files can go for also 100, 200 gig, and it takes time. Plus, it's not just downloading, it's also zipping or doing different type of compressions. So, and let's say the, the, the delivery process could take an hour. And the, the just uh, because this we need the AWS batch because once the the package is transfer is a, no sorry once the package is uh, download uh, compress whatever you need to transfer and also the transfer is not our by our control it could take uh, twenty minutes but also could take uh, six hours and because this we need a background process and will be pretty much impossible to keep uh, track of this with a lambda. That has a time, uh, time out of 15 minutes. So because this, we have AWS Batch. Plus, AWS Batch is coming handy because uh, it scales up and down as the concept of the job queue. So if we are sending uh, uh, 10,000 uh, delivery, they, uh, we, we, we can split them by partner. We can split by, by uh, let's say, the S3 service. Uh, one is using Aspera. So the batch scale up and down, and we and um, as a prioritization already built in that we actually heavily use because sometimes uh, a video has much has higher priority than another one, and uh, you need to skip uh, everybody else and start the transfer before. And what else? We, we the, and um, we because we are using the batch. So the batch in the end is a cluster with the uh, machines. We, we we configure the compute environment with spot uh, spot instances and another uh, another feature built in inside the batch is the retry because what if uh, the server the destination server go down or the connection timeout what do you do so instead to build the code to to handle the situations the batch can be configured with uh, 10 retry and the retry retry until they succeed. Okay, gotcha. Is the reason why you don't use, uh, say, Fargate uh, and instead use a batch because of some of the built-in uh, facilities you get in terms of the uh, automatically uh, right side, uh, well, scaling up and down and using spot instances instead of... Uh, but I think Fargate supports uh, spot instances now as well, doesn't it? Yes, but at the time, the functions didn't have the integration with the Fargate. Now, Fargate is support, support in AWS Batch, but it doesn't really work yet. And there are too many limitations for our case. So we cannot even set up the, the YAM role or something. So we tried, we did a research ticket and everything. We tried, but it, did, it didn't work. The advantage to use AWS Batch with Fargate probably is less configurations with uh, the CloudFormation uh, templates. But in terms of cost, pretty much they are similar. Okay, gotcha. Thank you for that. Um, before the show, you also mentioned that, that you guys uh, use uh, App Config. Are you using App Config with with AWS Batch, or are you using App Config with Lambda? 
uh, with both. So practically, um, we originally have the configuration files inside the S3 bucket. And every time, uh, because our, our flow and each Lambda could be customized. So let's say, I want to send images to you. You want a certain type of image. We are injecting the configuration at runtime. Uh, so before we, we used to have S3, but um, after we moved to app config for a few, for, for few reasons. One, we can do JSON schema validations. We have versioning and we can, uh, we have deployment strategy. At the moment, we are using uh, like uh, the 50%, I think the 50%, uh, 50-50%. And uh, we do rollback in case of problems. So we have this kind of built-in features that are, are comfortable. Uh, at, uh, I think, uh, I mean, here we are talking about saving cents, but uh, every time, if you're using, for example, uh, S3, now every time you need to do an API call. <laughs> and, uh, so you're going to spend $0.000001, but with app config in the hosted configurations, the access to the file is, uh, is free. And uh, inside the code is like, is, is like pointing to localhost, you know, because it's inside the, the, the Lambda layer. So there's a little things, but we we leverage the, the the versioning and the JSON schema. This is the 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 major reason why we opt for uh, app config. Okay, I see. Yeah, because usually I think a lot of people use uh, something like SSM parameter store instead of uh, app config for a lot of these configurations. But I guess that there's yes. no schema validation. Uh, there's no rollout strategy, which uh, I think uh, not actually that many people uh, would need anyway. Uh, but a schema validation is definitely useful. Yes, but with the parameter store, you have a limit of uh, four kilobytes, I think. So while with app config hosted configuration is 64. I mean, it, there, is always, there is always a limitation. Plus uh, with parameter store, you have a limitation on the API that you can eat. So, so you need to be aware of the quotas that you have if your application is, uh, is a scale. Okay, so if your config is really big, then the, that probably makes sense. Uh, with uh, SSM parameter store, you could you you could uh, set up advanced parameters, uh, which gonna give you eight kilobytes instead of four, uh, and you can also enable the throughput uh, limits so that uh, yeah. that yes. will go up to one thousand ops per second as opposed to forty. Uh, but uh, it does take it does turn uh, SSM parameter store into a uh, paid service where you're paying like five cents per ten thousand. Was it ten thousand requests or something like that? Uh, um, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's but still it's uh, it's no still quite a small amount uh, for something like this. Uh, but definitely yes. the schema validation I think is uh, is is useful, especially when you got a big config file like uh, you know that that can't fit into four kilobytes. Yes, and we are still using parameter store for the secrets. So inside our config there is the key reference. And so once we read, so we don't store any secrets inside the config. Everything is in parameter store. So we use both. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Um, okay, so I guess uh, we're coming to the end of the conversation, or at least the question, of, uh, the list of questions I have. Um, do you have any sort of AWS wish list items that uh, you'd like to share in case uh, someone from AWS is listening? Hmm. Uh, I think my, the, my wish list is on X-ray. X-Ray is a fantastic tool, but it doesn't really work. 
for end-to-end tracing, especially on the serverless application. I mean, if you want to do real end-to-end tracing, today you need to use Epsigon, Lumigo, Tundra, or similar. X-Ray has major limitations with the trace. So this is one. The, the other one is uh, when they... So every time that we are talking about serverless, uh, um, they actually... I hope the services actually scale at the serverless level. Sometimes you have a hard limit. And, uh, you know, at scale, the hard limit, when is very low, let's say 1,000 or 5,000, is not the best. For, uh, for example, I give you the set functions with... Uh, AWS batch, right? The AWS batch, even if the, even if has the job queue built in, you have 20 requests per second on the API. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> so you are forced to build it with the step function flow, the retry, catch the, 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 the errors, that the API, the throttling errors, and retry. So sometimes uh, some services are there, but they are not serverless ready. If we intend the serverless with uh, infinitive scale, how how they sell it. So this is my wish list, on the, my wish list, improving the quality of the services instead just releasing new services every day. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. X-ray uh, sounds great on paper, but then uh, when you actually try to yeah. use it, uh, especially when the, for things like uh, if you need to find specific errors, uh, it's so hard to find you know, that that one thing, that, that one trace that you need, uh, especially when you're using things like AppSync where there's no there's no difference in the URL path. Uh, this, you can't really query into the, the actual, uh, the actual uh, query itself. Um, so you just look at lots of traces, but you can't find the one thing you actually need. Plus, it's all sampled uh, once you get over a few requests per second. So um, I find it really hard to actually find useful information uh, from X-Ray. And uh, like I said, if you're using things like EventBridge and things like that, then the X-Ray doesn't, doesn't even support it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is no point to release the service if they are not ready. I think AWS is doing a great job, I think. Most likely the team, they do their best. But I, it's better to not release half a working service, I think, at this point of time. Uh, I, I don't know if it's, uh, it's fair to say it's a half working service. Uh, it depends on, on the use case, depending on what services you use. Uh, uh, some people can still find a lot of use out of it, especially if you're using a lot of containers and, uh, and you're happy to do that uh, manual instrumentation. Um, but yeah, for a lot of service applications I've worked on, where you know EventBridge is often a pretty pretty key component, uh, not being able to trace through EventBridge uh, is a bit of a well, bit of a problem, and also it doesn't support things like uh, um, SQS, DB, SQS, SNS. Uh, SNS. I think is supported. Is it, is... No, no, but for the trace, it's the same problem okay. of uh, EventBridge. So okay. Yeah, there's uh, there's a whole bunch of problems of you know we think that it doesn't support, which is why nowadays I typically just use uh, um, uh, Lumigo. I guess another thing we've, I find with first uh, X-ray is that it tells you uh, the com the you no know, something called something. It tells you how long that that call took, uh, but it, it helps you in terms of uh, you know working out like performance issues. Uh, but it doesn't show you the the request and the response. So for debugging, 
you still have to have loads of custom logging just so that you see, okay, why did that call took longer than another one to figure out, yes, is there something specific about a request for a particular user? Uh, so now things like that, you still end up having to do some custom logging around uh, your, in yes. your code. Uh, that's where something like Lumigo and others, uh, uh, more specialized uh, serverless observability platforms do a much better job of where they show you not just the fact that there was a call from Lambda function to DimeDB, uh, but also what was the request and response. So you know, when you've got problems that are specific to say you know, one entity, um, you no, know, you can you can more easily find out uh, those differences compared to other successful requests that re responded quickly. But yeah, actually, it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's I guess it's uh, it's nice uh, getting started uh, tracing solution, but it's uh, yeah, I find it I almost never find it to be good enough uh, for a lot of the applications that I worked on. Yeah, another one is Cognito. Cognito as well as a thousand requests are the limit. So if you think if you want to build a web application, mobile application, unless you you have traffic that is not much, so for small medium business, fine. But for media, Cognito is far far away to be to be ready. Is so, it because of the, the the fact that it's quite spiky that a lot of people sign in just before a, a program starts? Yes. Right, right, gotcha. Uh, because you, you can go from, I don't know, 200 uh, active users to 50,000, 100,000. So you, you never know. Yeah, that's very similar to the kind of uh, uh, patterns that we saw uh, when I was at the zone. Um, and uh, yeah, you got, no, you got almost no users, or at least maybe a couple hundred or something like that uh, before a football match starts. And then uh, five seconds before the match starts, it goes from five, you know, 200 people to you know, 30,000, 50,000 or whatever. Uh, it just got massive spikes in the, in traffic. But I think for a lot of the other applications, as most of e-commerce or daily, just normal websites, uh, your traffic much more bell pattern, you know, then the, that's, it's, probably, it's, it's probably enough uh, that you don't have that massive spikes in traffic. But yeah, for some of these use cases like TV and the media, sometimes it's, uh, yeah, you got to think about those edge, ca edge cases when uh, everyone just comes in at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I think uh, AWS will fix it at some point, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I, I, I mean, also they're, they're quite, even though there's uh, there are hard limits, uh, they're often quite open to have a per disk per customer discussion around uh, okay if that hard limit doesn't work for you uh, what would work for you and they because those hard limits a lot a lot of time it's just a configuration <laughs> on, on their side um, so they can they can still relax those hard limits for certain customers uh, uh, especially around throughput so um, yeah. but yeah so so if, if that's you then the, have a have a chat with your account manager to see what's possible what the AWS can sort of customize specifically for your use case yeah, sure, I will do. Um, and uh, so, yes, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, There's some really good stuff that, uh, in the discussion. Is there anything else that you'd like to you know, share with the, the audience before we go? Uh, maybe maybe if uh, ProSieben is hiring, uh, anything like that? Yes, ProSieben is hiring uh, all over the stacks. So we have like uh, 30, 40 position opens. Um, for, from serverless, cluster, uh, everything is there. Um, we are happy to pay for relocations in Germany. Uh, from Germany, everybody can work uh, remotely. So if anyone wants to apply, can contact me on, on Twitter. They, they can find me on at uh, defrasca80 or find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Daniele Frasca in Germany. It's very easy to find. 
or go straight uh, to the Devrosiban website. Many opportunities available. Okay, I'll make sure those links are included in the show notes. Uh, and so anyone who wants to check out uh, open positions at the Proceban, uh, they can qu- quickly find that from the show notes. And once again, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us uh, today. And uh, no, stay safe. Hopefully see you in person soon. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.